1: This is the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and to mark the anniversary, we're replaying some favorite shows from the archive. This one, an interview with Brian Ray, was recorded in November of 2011. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Brian Ray about the value of being rejected about art directing for the New York Times, and about his development as an illustrator. I oftentimes try
2: to avoid illustrating exactly what I'm reading. I try to almost create like a secondary story to what that piece is, and you can tell people's stories about you, too.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: You may know Brian Ray already. You might even have had coffee with him last weekend. Brian does murals, posters, magazines, music videos even surfboards. But he's most widely known for his drawings of heartbreak and adoration, which appear each week in the Modern Love column of the Sunday New York Times. Before landing that gig, Brian Art directed the paper's op-ed section. So you might say that Ray is familiar with picturing abstract ideas and arguments. That experience came in handy recently, when Ray spent six months working on Malcolm Gladwell Collected, It's a box set of Gladwell's three best-selling books, and it's illustrated with almost 200 of Ray's amazing drawings. Welcome to Design Matters, Brian. Oh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. So I need to ask you, is it true that you have a fear of UFOs? (laughs) Uh, I would say, yeah, but maybe more a fascination.
2: When I was growing up, there was this television show called In Search Of, that I remember watching and seeing this UFO episode. There was also a Bigfoot one that I remember seeing as well. I <laughs> that, that mean, a bit freaked out. But yeah, I think that at that point, it sort of started to grow. And I think now it's probably more fascination than anything else.
0: So were you afraid that you'd get abducted?
2: It wasn't on that level. It was that afraid of the dark thing, you know. Ah, and as, you know, okay. as an artist, your imagination just runs wild as a kid. And not knowing what all of that was out there, As soon as it got dark, there was a kind of a freak out, you know. I had a really active imagination as a kid.
0: Now, did you always want to be an artist? Was that something that you knew from the very beginning? If you had this active imagination, were you always drawing and making and creating?
2: I think I was. The last time I was home, they had sort of gone through the old bedroom and and, and sort of dug out all these old pieces of art and things like that.
0: Is that in your house in Chelmsford, Massachusetts? Yeah, yeah.
2: My my family's still there, which is great.
0: And they still have your... Boy Brian room? Yeah,
2: there's a a kind of like, there's a collection of all the the all-star pieces from kindergarten, you know, that kind of thing. And they rolled those out when I was back home. And it was kind of cool to see a lot of those. But I think I've always been drawing.
0: So you went to the Maryland Institute College of Art. Mm -hmm. And when you graduated, you moved to a part of Baltimore where John Waters' film Pecker was shot. Um, Did you move there on purpose? (laughs) Uh,
2: I moved there because it was cheap. And it was an amazing part of town. I mean, it was It was sort of like going back in time a little bit. It felt like the 50s or 60s. It's a little rough, a little raw, but very real. I lived right on the street called The Avenue, which was 36th Street. And the things that I saw, I feel like I still reference them at times in some of the drawings that I do now. And I think maybe that's where I started to do more sort of documentary-style drawings.
0: So I understand that that time living in Baltimore had a real effect on your work. Yeah, Is it because of the intensity and the violence? Or what What about it had so much impact on the way that you work?
2: I think because Baltimore is kind of a culturally, there's a, there's a collision of a lot of different types of people. You have a sort of, you know, real kind of inner city push. There's a, obviously a huge drug problem in Baltimore as well. So there's a lot of crime. But you have a lot of really, really solid blue collar working class people as well. And then there's some very wealthy people too. Baltimore has this wealthy part as well. And so all these people kind of collide right around where the school is located. And so you're a witness to a lot of things. You experience a lot of things. And as someone who observes a lot, you know, I spend a lot of time looking. I think a lot of those things start to filter into your work for sure.
0: And I understand at that time it was when you were first beginning to try to avoid thinking about what you were making – Mm. and instead focus on accuracy Mm -hmm. and the development of visual stories. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that. How how do you develop a visual story?
2: Mm. I mean, I was spending a lot of time working in a certain kind of way when I first got out of school. It was very collage-driven. But in the evenings and, and when I had free time, I would go and draw from life, you know, the things that I saw along the avenue or different parts of Baltimore. And I would send those drawings to different art directors who I respect, like Leanne Shapton. I showed some to Paul Serra, who was living in... Baltimore, Baltimore at the time, yes. yeah. and became, So that's where you met. Exactly, yeah. Ah. And, and people whose work I really admired were responding maybe more so to those drawings, the drawings that were telling stories that were feeling more um, real. Do you know what I mean? And, yes. And, and and not so style-driven. And so their reaction was such a positive reaction, I thought, maybe I should continue doing more of of this. I mean, and that's not to say, oh, I just suddenly changed the work. The work was kind of always happening, but— I think it kind of percolated to the surface maybe a bit more because of people who I respected were, were saying, you know what, this is something you should really be spending a bit more time with.
0: So when you were in Maryland, were you at that time very seriously working toward becoming a successful illustrator? I mean, illustration is a very, very hard business to be yeah. in. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I talk to my students about this a lot. And each year, it seems to be getting more and more challenging, for sure. I mean, especially you know younger illustrators getting out of school. But I think choosing to go to the Maryland Institute is obviously a big enough commitment. And I knew I was down there to to try to do this as a career. So I spent a lot of time working on my craft and working on really, really my my concepts, I suppose as well.
0: What do you mean by concepts?
2: Like the the development of having a a style that was driven by ideas, not so much driven by style, or at least a balance between the two and Nowadays, I can maybe see that if you have both good ideas and good style, your career is maybe a bit longer. And so that was something maybe that I was attempting to achieve. But I think that the storytelling became a bigger part of it as I started to not care so much about style. And the work definitely shifted after my time in Baltimore.
0: And so you armed with all of these new drawings, this new type of work that you're doing, you decided to move to New York.
2: Yeah, I'd actually it's, it's interesting. I had gone to New York. You know, I did that thing right out of college. You go to New York with your portfolio and you run around to all the, all the art directors who, you know, people told you to go see. or right. People you really, really Such like. Such
0: a demoralizing, soul-crushing experience. Oh, my experience.
2: God. It was, I mean, <laughs> everyone said no. Uh, I remember going to see – you know, I went to Spy Magazine or I called Spy Magazine. And I said, uh, you know, I'd love to drop off my portfolio. And they said, Did well, they laugh? Well, they, they, their reaction was – and it was when it was – I think it was in Union Square at the time. And they said, yeah, just just put it in the mail. And so at that point, I was so demoralized. It, was, it had been like five days of everyone just saying put it in the mail. So I went – I actually went to the office. And I remember walking in and, and the woman said, didn't I tell you to put it in the mail? And I said, yeah, but today the mail's coming in person. You know, it was like one of those kind of things. Um, but it is it is did hard. It, did
0: it did it work?
2: I got a chance to show it to uh, to the art director. Show it to Alex Asley? Yeah, Alex, Alex oh, was the art at the time, which was great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Does
0: he remember that?
2: Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Although I have had a chance to work with him when I was at the paper. So, but I remember seeing Mirko Illich, and I kept a journal. I'm sort of obsessive when it comes to lists and 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 taking notes and remembering things like that. And Mirko, yeah, Mirko flipped through it like it was like a like a flip book. And he just said, you have nothing I can use here, but keep sending me samples. Oh, well, at so, least he was encouraging me to up, continue
0: but, to send samples. But I have
2: to say, those, those kinds of reactions were probably better than people saying, oh, we can, you know, it, it actually forced me to go back to Baltimore after two weeks of time here in New York and really kind of work on what it was that I was trying to say. And I think spending the time in Baltimore actually really did help, helped that a lot.
0: So when did you end up
2: moving to New York full time? I was probably 96 or 97.
0: And how did you get your job as the op-ed art editor?
2: <laughs> I lied. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> li- oh, tell I li- us everything.
2: <laughs> um, Nicholas Blackman, who's since become a really good friend, he was a real help in getting me in the door there. Um, he knew that I had an interest in design. He knew Paul. And, and did you meet him through Paul Sayer? I did, yeah. Okay. And when I came to New York, uh, Paul asked me if I wanted to share a studio space with him, which was Obviously a great experience, and I owe a lot to Paul for, for the experience itself. And it just gave me a chance to see a, a really, really fantastic designer work. So Nicholas had heard about me. I met with Nicholas, and he said, you know, if, if you're ever interested in filling in for me, you should maybe show your portfolio here. And so we set up a time to meet with, uh, I believe it was Tom Bodkin. He's a sort of managing editor of the art department there. And so I brought, I sort of cobbled together this portfolio very quickly, and all of it was just sort of fake layouts and this kind of thing. And I put it on his desk and, you know, he, it was the same kind of reaction, you know. So, you know, it's sort of like, so what you're saying is you have no practical design experience whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, oh my God. and I just said, I said, yeah, but if you give me maybe three days of training, just three days and just see where I'm at after that, If if it doesn't work out, then, you know, you can get rid of me. But I would love to just give this a shot. And I think he saw maybe that I was really excited about doing it, and so they they did not put me in the op-ed section. They dumped me into, uh, I think, like (laughs) Travel. <laughs> I think, yeah, exactly. I think automotive. Um, right. <laughs> but I think it was uh, I think I was in the dining section. So I did, you know, I laid out cupcakes and, you know, like picnics and things like that. And these amazing spreads.
0: So what was your were you considered an art director? I was
2: what they call a floating art director at okay. the times. And there's quite a at that time, there were sort of a handful of us. And when people would go on vacations, they would sort of dump us in for two or three days or a week, this kind of thing. And it was, actually it was a great experience. You learned a lot about newspaper design you know, the sort of make it fit design, which I like to call it. And then Janet Froelich asked me to come down to the magazine, which, you know, that's kind of next level. That's mecca. That's, <laughs> that's intimidating. That's um, amazing.
0: So she just happened to see your really interesting cupcake layouts and was, said, there, there, I yeah, want that guy yeah, in my magazine. There were, there were, yeah, exactly.
2: Those great layouts that I was doing in, the, you know, the dining section. Actually, there were there were a few people that I knew down there and they had asked you know, would you be interested in coming down to to our floor? And I said, you know, absolutely, I'd love to give this a shot. And it it was kind of like graduate school. I mean, there were so many amazing, you know, Andrea Fellow was there, Chris Dixon, Kathy Gilmore-Barnes, you know, uh, John Fulbrook was there at the time. I mean, obviously Janet, you know, they're just amazing people to sort of study, watch, learn from, and learn quick. Um, Well, everything at the time seems to be so quick. Yeah. So I was there for a bit. And then I had no interest in going backward to do any of the other sections. It just didn't really appeal to me, um, or those sections weren't quite the right fit, but I was always sort of obsessed with what was going on on the op-ed page. And I think when that opportunity came up, then it was they reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in coming in for an interview. And then you got it. I did.
0: So yeah. what does it mean being the art director of the op-ed page? How do you do that? How do you <laughs> create all that work so quickly? How do you decide who you're going to be working with? Mm. How do you brief the artists and the designers and the illustrators that produce the work for you? Mm. There's three questions, right? Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Go. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what was the first one again? <laughs> the first one was how do you how do you do it? How do yeah. You, what what is how do you do that job?
2: It certainly takes some time to get accustomed to the pace of it. I think the pace is really the thing, and once you lock into it, it's you. You kind of it's almost like you have an internal time clock when things need to to get done and you can sort of pre-sense your editor's pressure, you know, that phone call about to happen. Because it's a daily section, you know, it's, you know, two pieces of art every day, 365 days a year, and then on Sundays, it was, at that time, it was like four pieces. And now it's actually quite, you know, it's it's quite a few more because they've kind of consolidated the weekend Review with the opinion section. You just reach out to the people who you admire the most. You aim as high as you can for what you want on the page every day. Peter Buchanan-Smith, who was there before me, Steve Guarnaccio was there before me, but Peter was there before him. Peter gave me really good advice. He said, you know, look, don't try to hit a home run every day. Aim as high as you can, but there are going to be some strikeouts here and there, so just hit for average. I'd like to think we were trying to aim a little bit higher than that, but his advice was good advice because it's there's a burnout to that job. It is exhausting doing a daily section, but but it's also exhilarating too. You know, you're part of news, you're part of opinion, the pulse of things that are going on in culture, and when you match up great artists with a great piece— and the page really, really comes together, you know, there's nothing better. I think for the artist, it's always a thrill to do work for for that paper, for sure. But, but I think it's also a kick for the art directors, too. You know, you get on the train in the morning and you see someone looking at your page and you watch how they're, you know, how they're looking at the page, what they look at first, how their eye tracks across things. And, you know, though it's a pretty gray page, you know, there are moments where we did did some things that were a bit more dynamic with the page. And it was always pretty exciting to see how people reacted to it.
0: What I find so interesting about the op art pieces is how telegraphic they are, mm. and from what I understand, you give people what a couple of hours to create this work. Is that yeah. is that true?
2: Yeah, I mean the op arts have a little bit more time because there's a there tends to be copy involved with op arts, but
0: well, even the op ed illustrations, just the opinion and, pieces, those, yeah. those happen in a couple of hours. So yeah. you call someone and say, "I need this. I yeah. need to." really be telegraphic in its expression of a message. Yeah.
2: We we had a... Calling in three hours. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there were cases where we actually had to do that. I mean, there, we had what we called the, the the usual suspects, and it was a list of probably about three or 400 people that, you know, at, over a period of time, you, you start to have favorites. And you also have the emergency people, too, which, you know, you can call within, you know, an hour's time, and they can produce not only a great idea in a sketch form, but they can also... They can also produce a final piece, you know, when things, if things don't work out with an illustrator, for whatever reason, there were emergency people. And then if, if it really became unraveled, if it just didn't work with a couple of people, I knew at the end of the day, I could always jump in. But I think most of the artists knew that I, I just kept my distance. I allowed them, you know, I was a real fan of ideas. And so I tried to step back as far as I could. I didn't want to step on toes for sure. Unless, you know, unless I started seeing people struggling with development of something and, you know, I might add my two cents here and there. But my art direction tended to just trust. And I think that's that's always been the case.
0: But it's so compressed. I mean, if yeah. you have three or four or five hours to do something, yeah. what hour in there do you decide, uh-oh, I need to go to my emergency person or, uh-oh, I need to break out my pencils?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. And it, and it also depends on how involved the piece is, the sketch is. There was never a day where we didn't run art. We were We were good on that level. But I think, you know, if the page closes at 7 and, you know, you're still waiting around at like 5, 5.30 for a sketch, that's when you kind of have to pull the plug. But I think everyone knows the drill. The artists know what they're in for. And and I think for them it's pretty exciting. Obviously because it's such a, you know, it's 40-year history of image makers before them. And you kind of get to exercise your, your chops as a designer, as an art maker, image maker. You have an opportunity to really kind of explore Either new work or show some great ideas to some of the best designers in the world here who read the paper.
0: So when you came to New York, you were doing this job and you became part of a, a somewhat brilliant tribe of New York designers slash illustrators slash artists slash bad boys—the <laughs> mob, right? <laughs> Chris Silas Neal, Christoph Neiman, Nicholas Blackman, Paul Sayre, John Fulbrook, Rodrigo—a real boy pack. Mm. Did you influence each other at that time? You you did all seem to travel very much together. Mm-hmm. And there seemed to be a lot of cross-pollination, a lot of work that you were doing together. John Fulbrook was hiring you and Rodrigo and Paul when he was at Scribner. Yeah, Talk about those relationships.
2: I mean, we all kind of met one another early on. I mean, certainly when I got here to New York, it was, you know, it was just sort of by chance. It happened to be, you know... Guys who kind of like sports as well as design and, and surfing and 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 you know we, some of us started to surf as well and I think it was it was real friendship I think rather than oh I you know I really love your artwork or your design work I mean to be honest with you you know meeting a lot of these guys I really didn't know their work I didn't follow many designers I was kind of untrained in this kind of thing and so realistically it was just that we we were good friends and I think that's always the the best relationships are the ones that start out as friendships
0: so after. All of this time in New York, you decide you're going to up and move to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Were you able to find a cadre of like-minded peers there as well?
2: I've met a few. I've met a few. And I think, I mean, LA is one of these cities, you don't have as many opportunities to run, you know, run into people as easily as you do in New York. I was out with some friends last night and I, you know, we were joking that I've probably talked to more people, you know, in one evening in New York than I have in the entire year and in Los Angeles. But uh, it, you know, there are some great people that I've that I've met. Some of them are are surfers, some of them are designers, some of them are filmmakers. And it's just nice to kind of round out the group of of people that, you know, you surround yourself with. I had a really great opportunity to meet a lot of people at Good Magazine when I guest art directed there for a couple of issues. You know, some really great thinkers, really enthusiastic young people that, you know, are doing really special things.
0: And then you spent a year in Sweden. Yeah, that kind so, of then, yeah.
2: <laughs> That sort of ruined the whole, like, you know, make new friends at the new school.
0: <laughs> so, why Sweden and what did you do in that year?
2: I was there supporting my girlfriend at the time. She had decided to go back to school. And it was about eight months into my time in, in Los Angeles. And she said, would you, would you be interested in going? I said, Absolutely. You know, this, I don't have firm roots anywhere really. So, let's do this. And I managed to get a studio while I was there with, uh, I shared a space with uh, Amelie Hegart. Uh, who's another illustrator, really fantastic illustrator out of Stockholm. And, and I really kind of just established my own life there. I was, I was preparing for an exhibition in Barcelona. So I had an opportunity to kind of devote a lot of time to that as well. And, you know, I met so many good friends while I was there. I mean, lifelong friends that, you know, I've gone back to visit them a few times recently. And it's, you know, it's, it's such a different world, though. I mean, it's just such a different experience in New York and, and L.A.,
0: Did being in Sweden change the way that you work or change the style of your work? Yeah. In what way?
2: I think it kind of relaxed the work a little bit. And I I think maybe the modern love pieces are a really good example of that. I think the drawings just maybe became a little bit more intuitive. I was producing a lot of work independent of assigned pieces. To be totally honest, I actually didn't tell anyone my phone number while I was there. I just wanted to see if I could... Sort of step away from illustration for a little bit, not you know sort of stop it, but just if people wanted to reach me, they could reach me by by email
0: That's pretty ballsy
2: it <laughs> It was a little scary actually um, i don 't know if it was very smart but uh, but it did give me a lot of time to devote to my own personal body of work that I just started to to work on and and some of that was explored in the at the Jean Moreau in Barcelona. And I think I just by stepping away maybe from illustration and allowing myself time to to devote to other other work, I think it helped the work. I'm hoping it made it a little bit more fresh, but it certainly felt different to me. And I, I was more enthusiastic about doing it.
0: Were you ever afraid that given your retreat from the sort of illustration world day to day that people might forget that you were oh, yeah. an illustrator?
2: Yeah, you think that every day as an illustrator. Do you really? Do you really? Um, I say that as a joke. I think, it's, I think it's always a fear in the back of the mind that, you know, your work still has the relevance. The phone will ring. I mean, as a freelancer, you're always a bit worried about that. But, you know, I've always had this attitude, you know, you just kind of try to keep your head down and just keep working and the work will come. You know, you hope that, that is, that's how it works.
0: Well, let's let's talk about fear a yeah. little bit, mm-hmm. because in addition to your early fear of UFOs, mm-hmm. you have a number of other fears. Yeah. Which you catalog. You were recently invited to participate in a mural show, Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, at the Moreau Foundation in Barcelona. And your piece is extraordinary. Thank you. Uh, A huge handwritten mural of fears. Yeah. From what I understand, in 2008, you began taking inventory. Of the things both you and other people around you were worried about, yeah. And I read that you skated that after being in New York for eleven years, you discovered that you had a lot of fears. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then after a few months, you began to catalog them: yeah. physical fears, natural fears, political fears, random fears, emotional fears. <laughs> Why so many fears, Brian?
2: I feel like I should lay on the couch while we talk about this. <laughs> um, it's funny. I mean, a lot of people who had seen the the mural exhibition in 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 Barcelona had asked me if it was a political piece. And it never ever even occurred to me that there was a relationship between that piece and what was going on culturally at the time. Regardless of where your political stance is, you know, the media and, and the sort of like uh, the politics of the time were really based on fear. And mm-hmm. I hadn't really even thought about that until I started to kind of compile this list and really kind of explore different contexts for the list. It started on initially as just a, just a, a written thing. I, I was feeling really anxious towards the end of my time in New York, and I couldn't really quite figure it out. So I started just sort of jotting them down in my notebook uh, or my, my sketchbook. And as I mentioned before, it's a, you know, list making is sort of a, an obsession of mine. And after doing this for like two or three months, I realized, wow, I'm, I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but what I also noticed is that I, I wasn't alone. Do you know what I mean? And, yes. and, 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 you know, you would see it in the news. You'd see it on the television. You'd, you'd hear it all around you. And it became a way of kind of manipulating and motivating people to do – either vote a certain way, do a certain thing. And and I thought, wow, there's something in this. So Nicholas Blackman had done a an issue of No Zone and asked me for a piece. And so I did this particular piece but only in list form. And I thought it it sort of solved that as a, just as a list. But I thought the context could be explored further. And when this mural opportunity came up, I, I thought – this is a much better experience. I mean, it's a much more intense experience to be confronted with a wall of fears, you know, as opposed to just a page. It just seemed to make much more sense. And how big was the actual piece? There were actually two of them. There were two walls that faced one another. One was the, obviously, the fears one. And uh, that wall, I believe, was about 30 feet wide by about 15 feet high. And then the other wall was basically one of those pieces, the UFO. The UFOs. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> in a, sort of They're exp- following you, yeah, exactly. The Yeah, ex- the exactly. Uh, the, ex- the expanded infographic on that, I think, was uh, 10 feet by maybe like 45 feet.
0: So. And how long does it take to do something like that?
2: Uh, the two murals were, I think, uh, about 10 days.
0: And I believe that you described the piece as a place where the intersection of fear storytelling and drawing overlaps with people's imagination. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit where the intersection of fear, storytelling and drawing overlaps with people's imagination. It feels like that's a symbiotic relationship in some way. Yeah.
2: With the the UFOs, for instance, that, that particular mural is really like a large infographic, but it's an infographic of stories, less images. I mean, obviously there, there are these drawings of these UFOs, but what I was finding in the research is that the people who actually said that they saw UFOs, they were doing something that they don't ever, ever – I mean, they never do. They were actually sitting at a dining room table and sketching out what they saw. So they're actually – in the process of actually drawing something, they're doing something totally fearless. You know, if if I were to ask someone who doesn't draw to draw a face, they might kind of get a little bit nervous or anxious. But – but they were so convinced of what they saw that they were actually sitting down and sort of overlooking the fear and actually producing something that was essentially a storytelling piece. It was a piece of information. This is what I saw. This is when I saw. it. These were the number of witnesses. This is where I stood. My dog was there with me. And as I was doing more research, you know, like 50 years worth of UFO sightings, I found that there were a lot of moments like this where the drawings themselves, it doesn't even matter what the drawings are because they're telling these wonderful stories in such a simplistic way. You know, and... Obviously the experience is probably really moving if they actually did see something or said, you know they experienced something that must have blown them away you know when it happened they must have been really scared obviously but the idea that they were actually committed to telling a story about it in drawn form to me was completely fascinating.
0: Have you ever seen a UFO?
2: No. no. Do you
0: ever hope to?
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> we used to have this question that, you know what would you rather see a, a ufo uh a ghost or bigfoot you know that was sort of my my sort of uh entry question you know uh what's your answer i would say bigfoot really this, yeah absolutely oh, i want to see a ufo yeah
0: so talk about some of your other lists what are the other lists that you're making or keeping i keep this
2: it's kind of like shorthand in a way like you know because time is you know like I don't have the time to sit down and do like a daily journal, you know, like with like hearts in the corners and that kind of thing.
0: Oh, I can just imagine you
2: doing that. that. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> no. I should start that. I'll send you one. <laughs> well, it's interesting. <laughs> a, a column of hearts is, you know. My, my day like... with Debbie was fantastic. A little heart. <laughs> um, but it's uh, I tend to keep lists of, you know, like if I go to a dinner party that just is a really special night, I'll, I'll sort of keep a list of the things that might have been said during the dinner, this kind of thing. I also keep – <laughs> when I got to Los Angeles, I kept this sort of funny list that was started out as a joke more than anything else. But all the celebrities that I've seen in in Los Angeles, which is just, you know, ridiculous because, you know, it doesn't matter. But it's, but it does matter. You know, it's really – it's kind of funny. And I kept a list – my my really good friend Thomas in in Stockholm, he and I kept a list of all the bars that we went to while we were there.
0: So it's sort of evidence of a life lived. I think so.
2: Yeah. And I think it's become more important to me. Um, I had a studio break-in when I was in Stockholm. And I lost like 15 years worth of work. I I lost an external hard drive, my computer, my camera, you know, all these photographs from like 15 years worth of my life that were on this, you know, on on my computer. And when that happened, you know, really changes how you look at documenting things, keeping lists, why you produce what you produce, what you produce and how important that is. Uh, I think at the time I was doing a lot of work on the computer, like doing a lot of finished work on the computer and... And I thought, you know what, I need to start producing some stuff by hand that I can actually, you know, have like a record of or at least hold, you know, because once it's gone, it's gone.
0: How do you get over something like that?
2: It it took me some time. I mean, I was really devastated. I I mean, as you know, anyone who's ever lost anything is, you know, you you lose a nice pair of shoes, you get upset about it. But but I think with this, it was maybe more so the photographs than anything else. I knew I could produce the work again. And as work changes and evolves, you kind of distance yourself from it and you feel like, okay, I'm going to do something else and it'll be fine. But I think photographs of time spent with people, you know, like family photos, that stung for sure. And then you just, you, you know, you go back in the studio the next day and you just start producing
0: again. In the last year, you started illustrating the weekly column for the New York Times mm-hmm. Modern Love series. Speaking of hearts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what has that been like for you?
2: It's the best series I've had a chance to work on. I mean, I am just really feel really lucky to, you know, work on it every week. I was talking to uh, the editor recently about the column and... You know, he'll send me the the essays on a Friday, so I have an opportunity to read them over the weekend, and then on Mondays I'll sketch, and then Tuesdays I'll really start to explore like the finished work once I select a piece. And uh, you know, some of the pieces are you know really kind of gut wrenching. I mean, they're you know it's
0: well describe the column for people that might yeah, not be aware of it.
2: Yeah, so it's it's essentially a um, it's it's a series of essays um, by different writers every week, and they explore you know, the heartaches, the hope and the love that people have within relationships. And it may not necessarily just be, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It's like, you know, husband, wife, you know, a grandmother, you know, who's watching your children, you know, like people who are important to you, really just relationships and not always just, you know, you know, like hearts and cupcakes, but, you know, hardly ever. Hearts hardly and ever. Cupcakes. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I think this is the thing that people really kind of they feel like, wow, this like some of this stuff feels like my life, you know, and. You know, Dan uh, does a, a fantastic job of, you know, editing some really intense pieces. I mean, uh, you know, in the, in the beginning, I was like, wow, I don't know if I can I don't know if I can do this. This is this is emotional. And there aren't too many funny ones. But Rarely. But they are they're that moment in the paper where it's just genuine truths, you know, people who are really experiencing some intense things. And and I think when I started the column, I said I was talking to Corinne Myler. She's the she was the art director that that I started working with there. And I had shown her some of my drawings, these sort of love notes to my girlfriend at the time. And, and, you know, they were sort of drawings that I had done for her, very simple drawings. And I said, look, I'd, I'd love to do it, but I'd love to do it in this style, you know. So the drawings themselves maybe try to emulate some of that emotion rather than just come up with, you know, ideas or concept pieces. That wouldn't work, I think, for this column. I think it's at its best if you can match the emotion of those pieces. Then I think it's a much better you know connection
0: it seems that your work has changed quite a lot in mm-hmm. the last two or three years the work that i had been seeing on book covers or in any number of places where you publish your illustrations the work now for the modern love does feel like a very different voice a very a much more self-realized voice in many mm-hmm. ways it feels like you're now beginning to move into fine art as much as you are an illustrator. Those pieces that you're doing, I wouldn't necessarily call them illustrations. I would mm-hmm. call them little paintings, mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not they're made with paint, sort of beside the point, but they feel very much like art. Mm. Would you agree with that? Do you feel like that's the direction you're moving in?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think the work's definitely changed. Obviously, you never know where it's where it's going to end up, but my hope is that, you know, that I can produce work that, and I was saying this about Chris Neal's work, and Chris was the illustrator. I mean, he's just a fantastic illustrator, and he actually did work for the column before me. And the greatest thing that I can say about Chris's work is that you can look at it on the page, but you could also hang it on the wall.
0: Yeah, I would and, say the same about yours.
2: Uh, I, uh, thank you. I mean, that's, that would be my hope someday that I could, I could produce work on, on that level. I think, you know, being an illustrator, you have this it's a luxury that you have an opportunity to kind of, like, drop into someone's life, you know, in the newspaper every weekend. I mean, that's just such a great opportunity. And, and you know, you can tell people's stories about you, too. You know, these, these, these modern loved ones, as much as they are about those essays, you know, there's certainly a lot of me in there. You know, my, my girlfriend at the time, she was sort of the, the, the model for a lot of the early ones. And, and also there's, you know, there's overlap. You know, you will read these essays and you have this chance to kind of put yourself into it. And, you know, I suppose, you know, fine artists do that with their work. You know, the work is as much about them as it is about whatever else it might be about. But hopefully I get a chance to do more of that work.
0: Has the column influenced your own ideas about love and relationships?
2: Yeah, I was. You know, this is another thing that I was talking to Dan, the editor, about last night. We were, you know, we were sort of discussing the column. And, and uh, I said there was a period last at the end of last year where you know, there was a stretch maybe about four weeks where those pieces, if you just changed the name of the writer to my name, <laughs> they could have easily been about me. And I thought, all right, got to throw me a bone here. I need, I need something funny. It'll, you know, just give me one funny one. And he was sort of laughing about that. But there are those moments where you feel like, wow, this is – I remember this. This, was, uh, this happened to me. And I think because of that, because you can connect with the piece on that level, maybe the storytelling becomes easier to actually produce something for it because you can actually remember the place that you were and, and though I, I oftentimes try to avoid illustrating exactly what I'm reading I rarely if ever do that I try to almost create like a secondary story to what that piece is and, and they've been great about allowing me to do that but if the piece really resonates with you then you have, really have an opportunity to tell that story you have a place you, you know, there's a whole other experience that might be independent of that essay that really is about you
0: So when you're working on these early sketches for the piece, for the column, do you do more than one sketch? Do you have a lot of different ideas? How do you ultimately decide what is going into the paper?
2: In the beginning, I was doing a lot of sketches because we were trying to figure out the visual language for the thing, you know, the the tone of the piece and not necessarily each individual essay, but really that we were trying to set up the tone for the series and, you know, how abstract do we want to go, how raw do we want it to be? Is it more sort of like emotion on the face or is it more just the setting and the staging of it but at this point i i think we may you know we're certainly hitting a stride here now we feel really comfortable with what we're, we're, we're beginning to do and and i think that at this point i can probably sketch out maybe three ideas and feel really good about one or two of them. i never send anything that i don't want to produce obviously but there's always one or two that i feel really strongly about and i'll i'll let them know and they've been fantastic about it. just they always seem to pick the one that i feel really good about and if they don't it's it's okay too
0: one of the biggest projects that you've worked on over the last year was working on what I've been calling the illustrated Malcolm Gladwell, a box set collection of three of his best-selling books, The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did mm. how did you get that gig?
2: Yeah. It's,
0: uh, That's a big gig. It's <laughs> a big gig, yeah. Uh,
2: so Josh uh, Josh Lieberson, who at the time was one of the founders and, and people running Helicopter, a design studio here in New York he had uh sent me an email asking me for you know he was talking about this this box set with Malcolm Gladwell and you know he was interested in in getting a few names of some illustrators and obviously if if he thought i would be interested you know i should throw my name in the mix as well and
0: that seems unfair yeah right <laughs> i have to talk to him about that yeah,
2: um, yeah. you know it's just it just seemed like a great great opportunity so i gave them a list of names and i i think at the time josh was just sort of looking for a wide you know sort of fan out version of like all the playing cards that he could think of you know to show to put in front of malcolm's eyes and uh so i added just a pdf of my work as well and said you know i would be thrilled to be considered for it and he showed it to malcolm and i think malcolm just you know he saw something in my work that he thought might be appropriate for what he was doing what was it like to work with malcolm he's, he's amazing you know i had read tipping point obviously but became a real fan of of the other two books as well outliers for sure and you know he's real hands off. Like he, you know, he he insists that he's not a very artistic person. But in many respects, because he's as hands off, he 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 is to a certain degree. He's a real appreciator of, and, and he trusts a lot what the artist does. And and he he allowed us. I, I worked with Paul Sayre as well, the the art director for the project. And um, I mean, Malcolm really allowed that process to kind of just evolve and blossom and. I don't want to say he he stayed out of the way. He was real specific about the things that he didn't want to What didn't he want? We talked yeah, it was it's interesting. It's kind of how I used to art direct illustrators like when I would call them and ask them about sketches, I'd say, "What do you which one of these sketches don't you want to do?" And so I kind of approached Malcolm with you know, when he was sort of reluctant to say what he liked, I said, "Look, it's much easier if you tell me what you don't like cuz then it gives me some borders that I can, you know, work off of and in the beginning. We really didn't know. I had a sense of what I was interested in doing with it, but um You know, he was reluctant to do anything that was real heavy on word-based pieces, which initially I thought I would produce a lot of pieces going in that direction. And it made sense not to do it. We also talked quite a bit about doing figurative work, work that felt too illustrative. And I was really anxious to not do anything that felt illustrative in a traditional sense. And so, you know, there are moments where the, the work aligns perfectly with What he's written, but then there are other points where it veers wildly to the left or right and in this real kind of oblique way. But I think that taking the reader on that kind of journey a little bit or stretching their mind a little bit visually is kind of exciting, you know, and it makes the book feel maybe more artful than you know, a sort of, like, illustrated children's book of, you know, Malcolm's amazing Oh, writing, you gosh, know? no, so it's actually very yeah, sophisticated. It's, it's certainly not that, so.
0: You had to do over 200 drawings, so yeah. that meant you must have had to do about four or 500 to get to the 200 yeah, that you like, yeah, right? There's,
2: yeah, there's, like, three stacks in the studio. My assistant's like, what are we going to do with all these drawings? I mean, uh, there's probably about 300 and, and a handful of drawings that we produced, and we initially had said that we would probably do 50 or 60 for the whole, for all three books, And we ended up doing, we ended up printing, I believe, over 200.
0: Did you just stay up day and night drawing? I mean, did it it ever feel like you were a factory of illustration making?
2: I think towards the end, I was feeling like we we really had to press and we had to produce these things. But I think the time that I spent at the New York Times, that system that I got into, the pacing of that, and also working on the mural in, in Barcelona and being around so many, I would say, you know, not fine artists, but artists who are professionals at what they do. I mean, so dedicated to this. its It actually helped me quite a bit because I never felt like I was exhausted by doing the drawings. I never felt like, oh, it was work. I mean, it's, I get to paint and draw for a living. I mean, I should never complain about this. And I felt like it never felt like that. I mean, we had time up against us because we were printing it in Italy, and so it sort of condensed our, our schedule a bit. But it was, it was a lot of day and nights of drawing. And, and fortunately, I had an assistant there who was just... You know, she was just scanning as I was producing. So I was completely free to just draw. And, and I think it actually helped the work. The pace of it actually helped the work towards the end because it became very fluid.
0: So your studio seems to be moving toward more gallery-based work. Hmm. Do you see yourself doing more and more of that type of work? Do you see yourself ever giving up illustration?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if I would ever give it up. The storytelling aspect of it is just too strong. But I think the work is definitely evolving. Hopefully I do more wall-based pieces. I mean, obviously the installation stuff I love doing because it, you know dealing with context is such a different experience from doing illustrations where it's confined to a page. but uh, hopefully there's more opportunities to do to do more more quote- unquote "fine art pieces.
0: Well, congratulations on an incredible year, an incredible body of work. Thank you. To learn more about Brian Ray and what he's up to, visit Brianray.com. I'd like to thank you for listening and remember. We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.